This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys. One from California and one from Massachusetts. Squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court, Bob. And I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law and also Legal Blog Watch for Law.com. Well, today, Bob, as you know, we've uh, we've got a changing world facing terrorism and uh, other very significant issues across international borders, and that's going to be the topic of our discussion today. That's right, and we're going to have we have two special guests who are going to help us talk a little bit about the the intersection of uh, counterterrorism uh, law, international constitutional law, and uh, international law in general. Well, we'd like to get right to our guests and welcome our first guest, Amos Giora, coming to us from Israel. He is a lieutenant colonel retired from the Israeli Defense Forces. He's also a professor of law at Case Western University, Case Western Reserve University School of Law, and the director of the Institute for Global Security Law and Policy. Professor Giora teaches and develops courses and labs on the legal and policy aspects of counterterrorism. He incorporates innovative scenario-based instruction to address national and international security issues. Created in 2005, the uh, Institute for Global Security Law and Policy and provides key knowledge and guidance to the most pressing security problems facing U.S. and foreign governments, public, students, business, legal, law enforcement communities in the post-911 environment. The Institute stimulates and is shaping the national and international debate on issues of security and counterterrorism. Welcome to the show, Amos. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. And also joining us today is Tom Zwart, who is a dean from the law faculty at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Uh, he has uh, uh, been on the faculty there since 1997, and since 2004, he's served as as the uh, school's international dean and director of its LLM program. In 2005, he was appointed to the four-member board of directors, which which runs the school on a day-to-day basis, uh, and he's also responsible for external relations, international affairs, and, and other matters at the school. Uh, he is also an associate professor uh, and a leading authority in the field of comparative law and the internationalization of public law. He is chief legal counsel to the Dutch Liberal Party and regularly advises ministers and members of parliament and uh, has has acted in the past as counsel to the Dutch Deputy Prime Minister, the Council of Ministers of the European Communities of Brussels, and the Council of Europe in Strasbourg. Welcome to the show, Dean Zwart. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, Amos, let's get started with you. It's kind of perhaps obvious from your background as a retired lieutenant colonel in the Israeli Defense Forces how you got started in this, but why don't you give us an idea about uh, the topic that we're going to be discussing today and also uh, your connection with Dean Zwart? Well, first of all, let me begin with my connection with uh, with Tom. Um, I taught a course last summer at the Utrecht Law School on religion and terrorism, and uh, we were, were using that as a, as a basis for a much larger project that we're starting to develop, which is going to examine what we call comparative constitutionalism, 
in this increasingly small world, what is called globalization, we simply feel that nations can best learn from each other in terms of how they can most effectively combat terrorism under the rule of law in a, under, in doing so in a, in a balanced approach. And by looking to see how other nations go about doing it, particularly from a constitutional perspective, we feel that we can make a, a significant contribution uh, as academics, but also making a contribution to government governments um, in terms of how they go about redrafting or recrafting their constitution, or here in Israel, a basic law, which is akin to a constitution. But again, what's important to emphasize is un all under the rubric of the rule of law, and we call this comparative constitutionalism. And Dean Zwart, um, how did you get involved with counterterrorism issues and, and the kind of constitutional things that, that um, Amos is talking about? Well, I'm, I'm more of an expert in, in international, transnational legal issues. Amos is the counterterrorism expert. Um, I sat in in some, of his, uh, in some of his classes this summer, and I was immediately impressed by his, his knowledge and the way he succeeds in, in engaging the students. I'm, I'm interested in transnational law um, because um, our law school, which is in the Netherlands, uh, is very internationally oriented. We have students from all cor corners of the world. 60% of my students is, is not coming from, uh, from the Netherlands. And we feel that transnational law um, is, is the idea of the future. It, it's an idea which time has, has come. Um, we feel that students and professors, of course, should look beyond the borders of their own jurisdictions because a lot is happening uh, in the world which we uh, should take note of. Well, well, Tom, help me understand. I mean, constitutional law is something that you think of as, as a matter of, of, uh, of sovereign nations, I guess. It, it, how does it become an issue of, of international law? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. It's one of the traditional areas we usually uh, feel is, is something states should regulate uh, themselves. But let me just give you one example. There was a case recently by, uh, brought by an Australian uh, person called Glutnik, and he, was, he felt libeled by publication in Barron's online, the online edition, and he sued Barron's, well, at least the publisher, Dow Jones, in an Australian court. And uh, Dow Jones objected to that. They said, well, this is uh, a publication which was uploaded in the state of Delaware, so if there would be a case at all, it should be tried in the Delaware court. The Australian High Court, which is the highest tribunal, said, no, 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 the publication was downloaded by Glutnik, um, in Australia, and it damaged his reputation there. So this is the proper forum to try the case. Now, this is, sounds like a run-of-the-mill conflict of law case, but it has huge ramifications because until now, the lawyers of publishers like Dow Jones um, were used to reviewing whether publications were libelous uh, in the jurisdiction they were published in, in the U.S. But now they will have to check whether it is uh, legal in uh, Azerbaijan and uh, Zimbabwe and everything in between. So um, this has huge ramifications. Well, so how does that play out in terms of uh, the constitutional issues? Uh, Tom, I mean, are, are, we, are we talking about attempting to create constitutional standards? Is that what we're proposing here? Well, you could, that's a very good way to, to phrase it. What you see very often nowadays is that judges, uh, American judges do it all the time, refer to uh, foreign sources. They decide cases uh, 
relying also on foreign sources. There are a couple of very well-known examples in the U.S., like Roper v. Simmons, where Justice Kennedy gave the majority opinion. And in deciding the case, he relied on judgments handed down by the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, So what you see is a gradual convergence. Um, You used to have that among politicians. They met during these summits, and then they exchanged views and concepts. But nowadays, the judges, they travel, they meet, and they, too, exchange concepts. So they're very well aware what is happening in other jurisdictions, and they try to, to rely on interesting developments in their own judgments. And, Amos, how does global security law play into this discussion? Global security law, in terms of how a particular nation goes about protecting itself, I suggest cannot be viewed in a, from a unilateralist perspective only. Because counterterrorism, or rather terrorism, if terrorism is going to become internationalized, then I suggest that counterterrorism is, should be globalized. And one of the ways that I suggest we go about doing so is to learn from different nations, learning from each other in terms of what rules they um, develop, what laws they apply, what policies they develop, also potentially intelligence in sharing in terms of inf- um, information sharing between allies, maybe even on a cooperating on an operational basis. And if you talk about global security, um, I suggest that like-minded nations, while clearly protecting their, their own borders and protecting their own sovereignty, will be able to do so more successfully if they're able to combine forces, both operationally and also legally and policy-wise, with, what I, as I say, with like-minded nations. Um, I think to go about it in a more universalist fashion, I think ultimately will make counterterrorism more effective. I also add this great debate in the academy and also amongst practitioners, how to define the word effective, and are we going to win this so-called war on terrorism? I suggest we are not going to win it. The best we can do is hope to marginalize it. And in that vein, I suggest that by doing so in a combined effort or looking at issues together with each nation with its own perspective, I think that in the long run that would have um, greater effectiveness than otherwise. Well, there's a famous book out, at least here in the United States, called The World is Flat, and I guess probably today's discussion is a good example of it. We have California, Massachusetts, Israel, and the Netherlands all talking at the same time. Are we looking at globalization to the level where... uh, with counterterrorism and constitutional law and global security, are we going to be creating a... An, I mean, we have it to some degree in treaties uh, just right now, but are we going to be creating a, a, an international constitution for like-minded countries and inviting other countries to join in and even a court system? Are you asking Tom or me? Well, I'll, they're open, both of you. Okay, well, let me just w- jump in and I'll turn it over to Tom. Friedman's book, the, um, the World is Flat, is something that I quote regularly in, in, in lectures and in my writings. Because I think that the, the philosophical idea he puts forth is absolutely correct. Does that mean that tomorrow there will be an international terror tribunal? I don't know, but I think it's clearly something that we need to be very seriously thinking about. And that goes back to what I mentioned earlier in terms of intelligence information and, and, and similar policies and the, some kind of an international rule of law. Obviously, albeit with every nation having its own sovereign responsibility and sovereign obligation, but I think that the idea of the world is flat, um, you're very right to bring that up, and I think that's highly applicable to this whole notion of comparative constitutionalism. Tom? Yeah, well, I, I agree with you on the book. It's a wonderful book because it shows that law 
is, is transferring, is being transferred around the world. I, mean, I read in the book that many American tax returns were, are actually being dealt with by, by law offices in India rather than in the United States without the people being aware. So it's an interesting uh, development. Um, and it, it, it's, of course, a, a two-way street. I mean, um, what we see is that many concepts which have been developed over the years in the U.S., like judicial review of legislation, which, of course, was introduced by Chief Justice Marshall in 1803 in Marbury v. Madison, has been one of the most successful export products of the U.S. across the world. Every country almost in the entire world has judicial review of legislation. Um, we have um, public interest litigation, which was developed um, in the U.S. by civil rights groups in the 1950s, Brown v. Board of Education, of course, being a very prominent example. Well, nowadays, nobody is surprised that these, these uh, non-governmental organizations sue governments across the world in every court, uh, in every jurisdiction. It's uh, quite a common phenomenon. On the other hand, uh, what I see also is that in the U.S., judges in particular and lawmakers uh, are more open to what is happening across the world. I mentioned the Roper v. Simmons case, uh, in which the majority relied on a judgment of the European Court of Human Rights. Um, as, as I, um, I have been involved in drafting amicus briefs uh, for appellate courts across the world um, and also for the United States Supreme Court. And one of the, the, the most famous cases I was involved in is uh, McConnell v. F, uh, FCC, that's the McCain-Feingold uh, case, in which I drafted an, an analysis of uh, campaign finance legislation uh, across Europe, and the justices um, refer to that very often in their judgments. So they really take notice of that in their judgments. One of them even on an informal basis suggested that I should continue doing this on a regular basis. So I took his advice, and we are setting up um, a, an appellate amicus brief clinic at Utrecht to, to help uh, public interest litigators to um, file these amicus briefs. Well, one of the... the topics that we've touched on a number of times on this program is, is, is the uh, impact the, the Internet has had on, 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 on enhancing the globalization of law and law practice. And, and Tom, the points you just made seem to uh, speak to that uh, insofar as your, your, your law practice is, is clearly and truly international. Does the Internet uh, play a role in in bringing about this this international rule of law. Does does it become a forum for uh, dispute resolution, uh, or or for uh, in some way fostering uh, the developments in this area? Oh, oh, indeed it does. It's an extremely important development. Um, in addition to being able to read judgments uh, at the moment when they are are handed down. When I started my, my uh, comparative law career, um, I had to wait, wait one year before a judgment handed down in D.C. by the Supreme Court would arrive at my law school. We had a subscription, but it took a year, and now I can just access each and every judgment handed down by the Supreme Court uh, on, on the moment it has been handed down. Um, and, and we know um, it's so easy to, um, to notice developments in other jurisdictions. We have these email lists. Uh, I'm on several as well, and I'm sure that Amos is on a lot of them as well. When you just receive judgments from, from courts which you're interested in, and you can make use of those 
Right. Uh, so the Internet is extremely important. Well, but I guess I'm asking, even more practically speaking, on it, you know, there's been a movement uh, in certain areas towards online dispute resolution. Uh, certainly, some large, mm-hmm. large commercial enterprises, eBay for one, uses online dispute resolution. Uh, is that something that you see expanding as uh, as a, as an international forum for uh, for resolving disputes? Yes, indeed, I do. Um, one of the success stories, of course, is international arbitration. And the reason for that, and Internet uh, just just encourages this, this, this development, is that it's jurisdictionless. You can adjudicate a, a, a dispute without having to resort to a national court. Uh, so this is a hugely um, important development, and I indeed see this as, as, a, as a something of the future. Amos, there's been a big proliferation of cameras uh, that have enhanced security, and there's some famous instances in London where some terrorists have been caught because of publicly available cameras. Do you think that the enhancement of the Internet and the involvement of uh, video cameras and even video cameras in your offices and and homes will change the way that... uh, terrorism is dealt with from the standpoint, and, and even constitutional laws dealt with from the standpoint of being able to bring people closer together? I mean, right now it's all words. What we do is communicate through the written word on the Internet, and video is not really uh, there. But once video becomes available, do you think that that's going to change the way that people deal with uh, the Internet and deal with each other and bring us all closer together? I think, first of all, from the perspective of the intelligence-gathering community, Enhanced usage of, of video will be a very important um, tool in their toolbox. Uh, let's say you're a member, you're in the intelligence community in country A, and something has just happened in country B, and through the camera, which will be shown to you, which will appear on your computer within minutes, you're going to be able to work with your counterpart in that country and go into your own data uh, field, you do data mining in your own um, bank of information and be able to online assist your counterpart in identifying who was involved. And the moment you know who's involved, you're also going to be able to tell, A, what organization that person belongs to, who his known associates are, um, who the associates associates are. It will make the operational aspect of counterterrorism, I, I think, much more effective because it will be much, much faster. And then that goes back to how we began this conversation, the whole idea of, if you will, of internationalizing counterterrorism. So if we're able to have online um, information sharing, not only, as you say, by words, but by, by graphics, by pictures, I think that it will make it, um, frankly, much more effective. There will obviously be questions, particularly in the U.S. context, in terms of, of, of privacy and the right to privacy. Uh, I think those are surmountable. Um, I, th- I don't deny their importance, but I think they are surmountable. Every country has its own right to privacy laws, which goes back again to what we're talking about in terms of this comparative constitutionalism. How in the one state do we protect the individual's right to privacy, and how do we, on the other hand, enable the state to successfully use modern technology and down the road even more sophisticated technological means, which I do suggest are going to play a very critical role in more effectively countering terrorism. Help me, you know, I, I'm, I'm still having uh, trouble getting my arms around this, I think, because it, Craig asked before the question of, 
you know, are we are we talking about moving eventually towards, or are you suggesting that we at, at some point move towards almost a, a, a super global constitution of some kind, or are we talking about more along the line of, of model laws or model constitutions that are that are uh, adapted from from country to country? I am. Um, I'm a big. I'm a believer in sovereignty, individual individual nation sovereignty, but. And I think this is exactly how, where Tom and I are, are taking the next step to. It does behoove nations to learn from each other. That doesn't mean that there'll be one global constitution. But on the other hand, maybe we can start thinking about if there's an international criminal court to having an international terror court, which was obviously important questions about the rules of evidence and the death penalty and, and so on and so on. So I'm, I wouldn't say I'm advocating a, a global constitution or global constitutionalism. But I am advocating that even let's look, let's look at the United States Constitution and ask ourselves, in the present, given the present reality, post, the post-9-11 world, does the U.S. Constitution most effectively, on the one hand, protect your rights, and on the other hand, enable the government to most effectively protect you? And if not, what needs to be changed? What needs to be tweaked? In the American context, are Article Three courts the best mechanism available for trying terrorists? Yes or no? Is Guantanamo the best way to try terrorists? Yes or no? Maybe we should take the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court and turn that into a special domestic terror court, or as I say, use the ICC model and develop an international terror court. And then we can ask follow-up questions. For instance, in the American context, in the event that there's going to be uh, an additional terror attack and the government will, as, it, as occurred in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, quote-unquote, trample on your rights or limit your rights, Maybe we need to think now about what rights to reduce in the event of an attack. And I do suggest the best way to, to go about doing that as academics, and I think as also as government um, leaders need to think about this, is to see how other nations, like-minded nations, are addressing very similar questions. I would just add, I'm writing a case book, which will be published by Aspen, that examines five, how five different nations address counterterrorism. And what comes through consistently is, how you can tweak from here and tweak from there in order to make a, create a policy and a legal policy that is more effective. Well, we need to take a short break in our program. We will return and get final thoughts from our guests in just a moment. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. Did you know that Legal Talk Network podcasts are also available as CLE? 
Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's CLECenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. We're talking about international constitutional law and counterterrorism with uh, Amos Giura, of the director of the Institute for Global Security, Law, and Policy at Case School of Law, and Tom Zwart, dean uh, at the uh, and LLM director at the Faculty of Law at the at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. And uh, Tom, let me turn to you and ask. I, I understand that you're involved in uh, in uh, developing an international program for legal education. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, that's true. We are setting up what we call the Transnational uh, Law College. It's a, a joint venture with Washington University School of Law in St. Louis. Um, instead of students immersing themselves in one uh, typical jurisdiction like U.S. law or Dutch law, uh, we teach the students um, several uh, transnational law topics like trade law, international criminal law, public international law, and so forth. Um, interestingly, when you um, graduate from law school, uh, you will never be able uh, to know everything there is to know on each and every legal system. So what we teach our students is how to survive in unknown legal territory. We have some courses developed. It's like reconnaissance or being dropped as, as a member of the military behind enemy lines. How can you survive? Where do you look for reliable sources? That's what we are focusing on. We teach the students um, that many um, actors use law for strategic purposes. There's this interesting uh, research conducted by the French Senate, Senate in France, and they've discovered that 60% of the legislation they enact uh, is not never being implemented. And that, of course, is because they do not um, enact that legislation uh, to get it enforced but just to serve a particular uh, constituency, it's symbolic legislation. So the students should know that as well. So in this typical transnational program, the students will be focusing on transnational law, not on any uh, particular national jurisdiction. And we feel that we serve both the students, because there are many students that know from day one at law school that they will be practicing international or transnational law. And we uh, also serve... Uh, practitioners, the, the, the multinational um, international law firms who are looking for that kind of law graduates. Amos, we were talking before about, uh, you know, a super constitution, uh, and you were talking perhaps instead of trying to approach that perspective to look at it from maybe just the criminal side. 
And I'd like to ratchet it down one step further. Do you think that there's, uh, and I guess there's, I have two questions. The first one is, is there a, a body of, or an available source for international law, like in the United States we have Lexis and, and uh, Westlaw to do online research. But the second question is kind of an outgrowth of that. Is it more likely that uh, countries will be able to agree on legal procedure before they're going to be able to agree on legal substantive issues? Well, that, let's begin with your second question is, is, is a great question. Um, I think that the substantive question or the substantive, substantive quandaries are significant. Um, when, let's look at it from the perspective of, of Guantanamo and use that just as an example and to go, go internationally. A number of European nations, if not all European nations, have refused to extradite um, individuals they've detained to Guantanamo because of the possibility of, of the imposition of the death penalty there. And as long as an American administration, whether it's the present one or whichever administration replaces the Bush administration, will insist on the possibility of imposing the death penalty on a detainee, that's going to serve as a major barrier to the internationalization of the kind of effort that Tom and I are talking about. In addition to that, there are obviously questions with respect to the rule of, uh, rules of evidence, criminal procedure, and so on. But I would think that you could pull together X number, I don't know the number, of X number of like-minded nations um, who could in large part agree on the development of some kind of international terror court. I don't call it international criminal court because in, in, the, models that I've, in the model that I have developed, they are the, the the suspect is not going to be granted full criminal law guarantees as we know it in the United States. It's something that I call a hybrid pair, which is less than the full criminal and constitutional law guarantees. But I do think that this is something that needs to be further developed. I think it's an effort that the international legal and policymaking communities need to address. That then, going back to your first question in terms of available material out there, I referred earlier to the casebook that I'm writing. I, I can tell you now, having spent a year, year and a half working on this, Tom's right. There's an enormous amount of information out there. That's what makes the, the Internet such an incredibly valuable tool. Be it the, I'm looking at Russia, India, Spain, America, and Israel, enormous amount of information. Some of it needs to be translated into English, but it's out there. And because it's out there, because it's available, it's available for scholars, it's available for practitioners, it's available for policymakers, I think this will lead increasingly to an internationalization of the effort, and then that just will go full circle to this whole notion of, of comparative constitutionalism within the confine of each nation protecting its citizens, however it feels that it, it must do so under the rule of law. But I think that the substantive questions, which you are so correctly asking about, can be addressed. They must be addressed, and I think that they are largely resolvable. I think there's an enormous amount of work that needs to be here, I think if you look, for instance, if you, if you track um, conferences that the legal academics are going to in this field, they are going to be increasingly international in, in, increasingly international in scope, because I really do think this really is the wave of the future. And that's why, if I may add, that's why I'm so incredibly fortunate that Tom and I have, have teamed up in this effort. He's a wonderful colleague, and it really is all about internationalization. I think there's been a major shift to that. I mean, here's, I'm a lawyer from Southern California practicing, and I'm admitted in four states here in the U.S., but I've been invited to speak this summer in Austria on 
Sarbanes-Oxley's effect on international labor law. There you go. And you know, I would have never done that 10 years ago. It just wouldn't have been possible. No, that's what we see all the time. I mean, when I was in law school, it was unthinkable that students would go abroad and, and study elsewhere. And now we see all these students taking a semester abroad or taking their LLM abroad. And I think that's a wonderful uh, development. Unfortunately, our time goes by way too quickly, uh, and we are about at the end of it. But we wanted to give each of you an opportunity to give us any final thoughts uh, you have before we conclude. And also, if you'd like to give our listeners any uh, information on where they can reach you or find out more information about your work, whether on the web or or otherwise. So, uh, Amos, let's start with you. Final word. I think the fact that here we have four people, one in L.A., uh, Southern California, sunny, I understand, one in Massachusetts, one in the Netherlands, and one in Israel sums this up perfectly. I mean, this really is the trend. And, Craig, if you're going to your conference in Austria from Southern California, that's what this is all about. In the context of global security, counterterrorism, the post-9-11 world, and every opportunity in my articles, in my books, in my lectures, this is a theme I consistently stress. We cannot go about it alone. We must understand how to do so in a more effective international fashion. I think this is clearly the wave of the future. And I, I'm grateful to you for, for having both Tom and I on. And I think that the kind of project that Tom and I have undertaken, which has very broad international ramifications, is clearly the, the wave of the future. In terms of, if I just, two final words, the casebook that I'm writing, which addresses these five different countries, which is going to be the first casebook in this field, really is an attempt to explain the legal aspects, the policy aspects, the intelligence gathering, and the operational aspects of counterterrorism by looking at five different countries, I really am convinced this is an absolute must. In terms of how best to get a hold of me, my email is axg128 at case dot edu. I am very email responsive, and I look forward to hearing from any of your listeners. And thanks so much for having me on. Tom? Yeah, well, let me start by giving my email address as well. It's t of Tom dot toward at law dot uu of University Utrecht dot nl. Uh, I, I completely concur, of course, with what, what Amos have been, has been saying. Um, the longer I do this kind of work, this transnational work, the more I understand that people everywhere are facing the same problems, also the same legal problems and questions. Solutions may be different. Uh, but the, the questions are the same, which is very, very interesting. And along the way, you meet very, very interesting people like Amos Giora. Well, thank you both very much for participating today. We really uh, enjoyed this discussion. It's been enlightening for me uh, and certainly broadening the scope of uh, our experience and our listeners' experience. Bob, again, another great program this week and look forward to talking to you again next week. Yeah, it's been an opportunity for for, uh, us to meet two very interesting people as well and uh, thank you to our guests and look forward to talking to you again next week, Craig. See you then. Thanks again for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. 
and me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.